Welcome to Journey to the Stage, where we highlight current and upcoming projects, but always start at the beginning of the artist's journey. This is episode number 12, and I could not be more excited to have a chat with my guest today, Gordon Kennedy. Before we begin our chat, please consider following this podcast or subscribing wherever you listen, or giving a kind rating or review if you enjoy this conversation. As I mentioned, my special guest today is Gordon Kennedy. Gordon is a multi-Grammy winning songwriter, producer, guitarist, who has played on albums by Don Henley, Kenny Loggins, Reba McIntyre, Michael McDonald, Leanne Rimes, and many, many more. Gordon has written 15 songs that Garth Brooks has sung and also has recorded with Alison Krauss, Stevie Nicks, Faith Hill, Don Henley, Tim McGraw, Carrie Underwood, Peter Frampton, and on and on. Many, many there. Beyond his musical accomplishments, and we've just scratched the surface, I've talked to several people who know Gordon personally and show what a great man of friendship, family, and faith he is. So Gordon, welcome to Journey to the Stage. Brian, thank you so much for inviting me on today. It's a pleasure and an honor. Well, I'm so, so grateful. And a special thanks to our mutual friend, Bryn Gershmel, for connecting us. I really appreciate that. Thanks. Love the Gershmels. Yeah, great people. So we've caught you between the legs of Garth Brooks Stadium Tour. When do you jump back out on the road? We actually played the first show of this is going to be the final year of the stadiums. And so we played the first show a week ago Saturday in San Diego. Mm -hmm. We go to Orlando a week from this Saturday. And then at that point, I think it's going to be almost every weekend for a while, maybe one or you know two off here and there. But it's I'm told a total of 17 stadiums in North America between now and August, and then take a few weeks off at the end of August before going to finish the stadiums in Dublin, Ireland at Croke Park, where Garth has sold out five nights, 82,000 people per night, and that's how the stadiums will end. That's how the stadiums tour will shut down. How fun. Well, we'll definitely talk more Garth a little bit later in our conversation. As we were chatting about in our our conversation before we hit record, um, music that you have made has has been part of my life since I was 16 when I first heard that thundering guitar in the beginning of the song, Don't Wait for the Movie by White Hart. And as a fan of classic rock and being raised in a country home, music you have made has been a part of of my personal soundtrack in some fashion for for many years. As I mentioned, uh, my step uncle was was Hank Cochran, and you said there was a connection with him and your dad. Yes, my dad, when he moved us, me and my mom, I was a year old when he came to Nashville to just sort of stick his toe in the water to see if there was going to be something to keep him here in Nashville. And they had decided they would give it about a month before they would go home. They were homesick. And about the time they were packing the trailer to go back to Shreveport, Louisiana, Shelby Singleton, who was the guy that had talked my dad into moving to Nashville in the first place, returned from a trip from Chicago where the home office of Mercury Records is. And at that time, they hadn't had a Nashville office set up yet. Shelby was going to run the office and offered my dad a position at being the number two guy at Mercury Records in Nashville. So that's what kept my dad 
in Nashville. But where your uncle, when you told me who your uncle is, that reminded me that the first ever pitch meeting. So my dad is an A&R guy, the number two guy at the Nashville office for Mercury Records. He gets sent out to listen to songs for the artists on the label that are recording to find a material. And back then, one of the ways that songs were pitched would just be the songwriter with a guitar playing it for you, sitting right in front of you and saying, you like this song? Okay, if you don't like that, do you like this song? So his first assignment as an A&R guy was to go to a hotel room where he heard four songwriters passing the guitar around, pitching songs for Mercury artists. And those four writers were Hank Cochran, Harlan Howard, Willie Nelson, and Roger Miller. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you imagine, and he said it got to be one of those things where one of those guys would play a song and then one of the other guys would say, give me that guitar. I'll, I'll show you one. So nice. that was his first ever pitch meeting and your uncle was there. That's incredible. Yeah, my mom married his brother, so he was my step uncle and he's been gone for, for several years now, but what a what a talented writer oh, yeah. he was. I I often ask my guests, if they come from a musical home, but you do in such a big, big way. And I will tell you, I, as I was just prepping for our conversation, I was rather blown away by your dad and his career, his trajectory. He really is a country music legend. Um, And he and your mom were both very musical. Your mom sang, tell us a little bit about what your dad and, and mom did and how they really helped to shape you as a musician. Well, if I go back to the beginning, you know, and people ask, how did you get into music? I would go back to this story about my father when he was nine years old, the oldest of three kids, whose dad was a deputy sheriff in Caddo Parish, Shreveport, Louisiana, and that's who I'm named after, Gordon Kennedy. And out of the blue, asked my father, nine-year-old Jerry, if he would like to go get a guitar lesson. And so I think being a fan of singing cowboy movies, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, and Tex Ritter, those kinds of movies, I think my dad was excited to go get his first guitar lesson at nine years old. My grandfather took him on a Friday, dropped him off to see a man named Tillman Franks, who would be a fixture on uh, the Louisiana Hayride as an upright bass player, played in Johnny Horton's live show. Anyway, that's who gave my dad his first guitar lesson on that Friday. And the following Monday, my grandfather died. Oh, boy. So he, he put my, my father on the path he would be on for the rest of his life, which obviously has shaped the path that I'm on as well. So my dad kind of gets mentored and taken under the wing of Tillman Franks at that point, who was very kind. And at some point, my dad signs a record deal when he was 11 or 12 with RCA Victor as an artist. So he's a little singing, you know, kid on, on the record label and Chet Atkins like played on some of his early sessions. And so, so dad's, you know, kind of making his way along. He's an artist and at some point gets asked if he would consider doing a duet with this Linda Brannon, who was on Ram records in Shreveport. So they're both at this point about 17, 16, 17 years old. I don't know. 17. They end up going to do this duet on the hayride, and they sing, Who Wears Short Shorts, that song. Oh, my. (laughs) And so they're doing that. It goes over big. Somebody says, Y'all got to do that again. They do. At some point, he starts asking my mom out, and they get married at 17, have me at 19, and and we move to uh, 
Nashville, like I said, when I was a year old. And and he's got four Grammys to his name, is and that's pretty incredible. Those were with Roger Miller. I think in two years, Roger won 11 Grammys in, in two years. And wow. that, as the producer, was part of winning four of those. And, and your dad, just from doing reading is considered one of the best guitar players in country music history. This, I mean, he, he's legendary status. That's, that's pretty incredible. He's, uh, he got inducted with six other guys that are all known as the Nashville a team players. They got inducted into the musicians hall of fame. Nice. 2007. And when Brenda Lee inducted them, she said these seven gentlemen collectively account for over 130,000 recording sessions. So that, that'll give you an idea of and explain what when I grew up, you know, being in the back seat of the car on a family trip or if it was a three hour drive or nine hour drive. Either way, my dad was constantly reaching for the volume knob, turning it up, saying, I think I played on this. <laughs> <laughs> I played on this, you know, over and over. And I'm still finding out to this day records he played on things that he produced were a different story he would bring those home on a reel-to-reel tape and gather the family around and instead of watching the partridge family we would watch the tape spinning around and listen to whatever he had just done in the studio that day with like jerry lee lewis or tom t hall statler brothers and nashville cats as john sebastian would call them you know nice well and i read that he he played with with elvis and roy orbison and um, yeah. one of one of the articles I read said that he played on "No Pretty Woman" by Roy Orbison. That's right, he did. Yeah, he was one of three guitar players on that session. And when you go to the Musicians Hall of Fame and tour the building, tour the tour the museum, there's a video loop that has my dad talking on there, and Fred Foster, the producer, on the video, giving credit to my father for coming up with the idea that when they start the song, it should be one guitar, and then the second time the riff is played, there's a second guitar. And then the third time the riff is played, it's all three electric guitars. And so my dad, Billy Sanford, and Wayne Moss are the three guitar players on Pretty Woman. Wow. And they were really were ahead of their time because now so many guitars are doubled and tripled and panned this way and that. I mean, that's really, that's pretty avant-garde for that time. Yeah, back then, if you wanted to double something, you had a second human being sitting there. <laughs> that's, right. the way, that's the way you doubled it back then. And he also played on Chris Christopherson's, uh, his first album, Casey's Last Ride, is one of my favorite songs. I, I love that um, from, from Chris's first album. He played on that. He did an instrumental album um, called Jerry Kennedy Plays with all due respect to Chris Christopherson. And so it was all Chris's songs. And see, I don't think a lot of people realize this about my father also. He was in the studio in the 60s. And he said his recollection was that it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. And he was sitting there with an artist named Roy Drusky that he had just produced an album on. And they were Mm -hmm. listening to all the songs that they had recorded for the album. When at the end of it, my dad said to Roy, Roy, he said, I just don't, I think we're still a couple of songs away from calling this album finished. Still need a couple of songs. And then the guy emptying the ashtrays and taking out the trash over on the side of the room from the distance voice says, I write better songs than those. And my dad said, maybe because it was two o'clock in the morning and, and I was exhausted. I just looked at the guy and said, well, let's hear him made an appointment with him. He ended up recording the first two songs that Chris Christopherson had done by somebody in this town. And they were on that Roy Drusky album. Really? Yeah. The guy with the janitor. 
That's fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating. Let's talk about you for a second here. How old were you when you first started playing guitar? I'd imagine you were pretty young, right? When I was growing up, my father being the guy that he is and the player, and that being you know his life, got us the, the proverbial silver tones. But that was at a point where I was about four, and my brother Brian was two and couldn't even put the guitar in the case. We were too little. Those guitars just would wind up in the closets with the G.I. Joes and the Major Matt Mason toys. And at some point, though, I started looking at my dad's guitars and things that were sitting around the house. And there was this little three-quarter size gut string guitar. I couldn't tell you what brand of guitar it was, but I, I picked it up and started trying to learn some chords. I had borrowed or been given a Mel Bay fun with the guitar. Yeah, remember those books. I learned they, by Mel Bay, too. <laughs> So I had a cousin down in Shreveport, Randy Arthur, who uh, had learned using that book. So he gave me the book. I brought it home and I learned the first inversion major and minor chords and kind of tossed the book aside. I thought that's enough for me to play along with whatever song, you know. So I was doing that when I was about 11 and would continue to just, you know, do a little bit here and there. Uh, but when my dad gave me an electric guitar for Christmas when I was 15, that was it for me. I've never done anything else. I've probably not gone a day in all these years without touching a guitar. Like you see people pick up their smartphones and, and then think, what did I pick this up for? I know I was going to do something, but it's just a habit. I, I do that with a guitar. I'll pick it up. But that changed my life when he gave me that guitar. Yeah. Now, back in this time, though, obviously there was a lot of country music around you. At what point did, did rock music enter your your world, your picture? My first record player when I was a kid, arguably, is a Seaberg 100 jukebox because my dad had that in the basement and it had all these 45s in it, final record 45s. And he showed me how to reach to the back of the, of the jukebox and find the toggle switch and flip it and the lights would light up and it would come <laughs> on and I could push letters and numbers and play all these records and what is loaded with things that he had done with roger miller but also instrumentals he had done um some of them were kind of bluesy r&b kind of things and at some point you know i'm listening to the stuff my dad is a part of in the studio recording but he brings home meet the beatles and he brought home beatles 45s of singles that he thought were fantastic hey jude and and uh he brought home get back if i'm not mistaken but i mean he was always bringing home things that he thought were cool but when he gave me the beatles album again that was like i put that up there with when he gave me the telecaster because i would say as a songwriter through the years when i started realizing what it is i'm doing as a body of work and where is it coming from i think i have roger miller sitting on one shoulder and the beatles on the other i get to be fifth sixth grade somewhere in there i start gravitating towards rod stewart every picture tells a story mccartney's first solo album i got led zeppelin 2 at some point and all this stuff was just like the lid flying off for me and and you know as a guitar player it just was stoking the fire and and uh, so i started making that part of you know what my interests were even as a player when i was first starting so but i yeah i always had this diet of stuff that was coming in the mail my brothers and I would tear into this box of albums that would come to the house that were all part of the Mercury Records family of music. And there would be, I'd take Bachman Turner Overdrive and Rush and Brian would get the country music and Shelby would take all the, you know, the R&B and the Confunction and all these. And we'd all go to our rooms and drop the needles on three different genres of music at the same time. And you couldn't tell nice. what was going on. 
I mentioned the Rod Stewart album, found out years later that that was their attempt at doing Bob Dylan Blonde on Blonde, which my dad played on that album. Instruments laying around the house, you know, and at some point, 16 years old, and I'm not asking my dad for the keys to the car. I'm asking if I can play that 335, you know. I love that. Yeah. I have found that good musicians and good songwriters listen to many different styles of music. What might people be surprised to find in your music collection? There's an album by Mickey Newberry called Looks Like Rain. I think when I listen to that album, I understand what a song can do regardless of the production, even though the production on that album is so phenomenal. My dad told me it took them three months to make this record. Although when you listen to it, you go, what took you so long? You know, (laughs) that album called Looks Like Rain, just from a songwriting standpoint, kind of shows me the power of the song. But I mean, my gosh, the Statler brothers that my dad worked with for 31 years, I think. Wow. Yeah, and there's another group where just the songwriting prowess from four guys, to me, they were the Beatles of country music. I would think that a lot of people who know me through the Whiteheart, Dogs of Peace, Frampton, or whatever it is, wouldn't know I listened to any country music growing up. But yeah. I've Bluegrass is one of my favorite things to listen to, but I can't do it. But Ricky Skaggs came to me to work on a record with him because of the Beatles' influence in my life. Yeah. And so I got to sort of live a dream uh, working with Ricky Skaggs. Of all people, I dreamed of being able to do anything with that guy. I get one song cut, I thought, for years. If I could just get him to record one of my songs, and then we wind up doing an album together. But that's because... He wanted some of this Beatles influence into what we were doing, what we we're going to do on that album. Right. I think if I remember correctly, he was looking to kind of change directions a little bit and do something a little bit new. So that's why he brought you in, you think? Well, I think it was also the fact that he heard the songs and thought, I want to do these songs. And I said, well, how are we going to do these bluegrass? He said, we're not. We're going to do them just like your demo. And that's why he invited me to produce with him. Who would you say are some of your top influences as a player? Well, I mean, I tell you the people that just blow me away. And again, Jerry Reed being one of them. My father is somebody that influences me probably more than anybody just because if somebody said, describe your dad as a session player, what was his strength and all that? I would say my dad knew what to play and Mm -hmm. he also knew what not to play. And that's that's a bigger gift, you know. And he was the only advice he ever gave me as a guitar player was, son, when in doubt, lay out. Point. But back to the guitars. I, Jeff Beck oh, yeah. is other world to me. And I just think that that guy is phenomenal. When I started working with Peter Frampton, I realized quickly that the world probably was focused on something else regarding him as an artist because he is one of the best guitar players I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Now you talked about you know, when you're going into the studio with somebody and you've been in the studio with some of the biggest names and biggest artists, do you ever get afraid that you're not going to give them what they want? I mean, I'm putting myself in that situation. You know, you're trying to get a feel for the song. You want it to fit to really kind of express what is being already expressed and take the song maybe to a higher level. Do you ever feel that a little bit of nervousness, like, man, I, I hope I give them what they want. Is that something you ever experience? Yes. As a matter of fact, when I was first, you know, cracking into 
uh, playing sessions, I had a lot of anxiety over that very thing to the point of where I would think I need to cancel this because <laughs> I don't want to show up and not be up there with everybody else that's on this particular session or whatever. It's sort of like, and maybe that started when I was a kid and just looking at my dad going, I want to do what my dad does. And I just, I just want to do what he does. And then I would go watch him in the studio and then I would meet all the guys that played sessions on that, that he was producing. And they were my heroes. They were my Marvel comics, you know, heroes. And, and they were these guys. And then when it finally got to be where I was 17 years old and my dad invited me to come down and do an overdub. So it was just me and him in the studio and the engineer. I was cracking the surface there, just getting into it. And then, but the, at the point where it was like, come do a session and you're in the room with these guys. I had wanted to do that my whole life. And then I was asking myself at that point, wait a minute, do I really want to do this? Because I worried that I was ready or would it? would I never be ready? You know, that kind of a thing. So it might've been a turning point when I started working on some contemporary Christian music albums with the likes of Brown Bannister. And then Wayne Kirkpatrick specifically would be one where I had done a, some, uh, a session for him when he produced an album with Brown Bannister, but then he would call me later on when he was producing an artist named Susan Ashton. Yeah. I remember Susan. Well, would I bring a Dobro? And would I bring a gut string just to do two overdubs? And then once I showed up with those two instruments and did that, two weeks later, we finished all the guitars on the record. I did all the electric guitars on the record. But I was finding at that point that there was a music out there that found me in my most natural state as a guitar player and as a musician. And so I, what started happening for me going forward from the early 90s was you know, if somebody called me, chances are they called me because they already like what I do. And so that made a big difference, you know, then, you know, somebody hearing, oh, that's Jerry Kennedy's son, call him. Well, if you think I'm Jerry Kennedy, then, okay, I'm worried. Oh, that's very interesting. Let's let's jump ahead a little bit. Now, you got the gig in Whiteheart when Dan Huff left. I was a huge fan of Giant in the late 80s. They yeah. I think they might have broke first in LA. I was living in LA at the time and I, they were on a morning show in LA and I heard them and they just were so great and really, really took off. Well, they were obviously Dan and his brother, uh, David were in Whiteheart. They left in, do I understand that correctly that you guys went to school together and he recommended you? Well, Dan and I went to high school together and, and David, we had a, our little bitty high school was too small to even have a marching band or a pep band, but we did have a killer rhythm section, <laughs> you know, where we could play, <laughs> nice. like the, the chorus would put on a, a 50s show. We always had a, we would be down in the orchestra pit or, or at the foot of the stage and we had this great rhythm section and we'd play, you know, dance here and there. After a football game, my fingers would still be bleeding, but I would be playing the guitar because I just wanted to do it so much and dan was a, a so much a driving force showing me where a different bar was set and i had to do i had to really work hard to just kind of try to keep pace with him and he still hires me years later to come do sessions which blows my mind i said what do you need me for you know but so dan in the summer of 84 wanted to go do some session work in la but whiteheart had three festivals they were playing or three shows i should say for would i substitute for him he asked me for those three shows and I said, okay. So I stepped in, did a rehearsal with the group, learned enough to do three shows. And then he never came back. Wow. <laughs> I, so I left the band six years later, but David was still in the group 
for uh, another year that I was, you know, when I first stepped in to replace Dan. So, yeah, but I mean, you know, that's one of those things where it's the, it's the, I call them dominoes. If I look over my shoulder, see these dominoes, they're all standing up. They've all got something. If you reach back and grab a domino and then you pull it out to look at it, it, it'll have some place, person, event, something on it. That if you remove that, everything after it changes, you know. And Dan asked me to to replace him in Whiteheart for those three shows is the reason why I'm married to who I'm married to all these years later. It's the reason why I changed the world happened, you know, because Tommy Sims came into Whiteheart when I was. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, just I, I, it's easy to look back and go, oh, my gosh, all these little things, everything matters, you know. And Dan, I just love that guy so much. He's more like a brother to me. And um, I'm, I've always been uh, grateful to have had a chance to sit beside him and play music any at any turn, any time we've been able to do something together. He's such a good guy and uh, deserves all the success that he's got right now. I mean, he's producing, it seems like, half of the town. You know? But he's phenomenal. Yeah, I would love to chat with him at some point. Now, I, when I had Mark Gershmel and, and Bryn yeah. on my podcast not long ago, we talked about how when Rick Florian joined Whiteheart, it really put the band on another trajectory. Yeah. But I think you coming into the band had a very similar effect because you were such an integral part of the writing and really continued uh, a tradition of excellence in in musicality that really continued with Whiteheart all, all the way through. And I, I look at those albums that you did with the band and they're exceptional all the way up through freedom. My goodness, to me, that is still one of my favorite albums in everything that I own. It's so beautiful. Let's pause right here and listen to a little bit of over me. Um, one of my favorite Whiteheart songs. And then we'll talk about that a little bit on the other side. Gordon, good music is timeless. That is a timeless song. What do you remember about that? You were a co-writer on the song. What do you remember about that? 
Well, first of all, we mentioned my dad's 335. It's on Pretty Woman. It's on Elvis Good Luck Charm. It's on Tammy Wynette's Stand By Your Man. It's on Ringo Starr's second solo album, Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde double album. And it's on Over Me by Whiteheart. Really? <laughs> I, get the wow. biggest, I get the biggest kick out of thinking about just the fact that that instrument has such a history and... I mean, I can get emotional even now just thinking about my dad and what he did, what all he accomplished and and how he got started and the wonderful thing that came out of a tragedy in his life when he was just nine years old. And But anyway, to have that guitar in my hands. And when I listen to that song, even when it was new, but even now, 30 plus years later, my, it just takes me to a place of worship. There are so many things that wrapped up in even just that one song off that record. And again, a lot of it has to do with the instrument I'm holding and just thinking about how God has blessed me and, and let me just stand under it and let it just pour and, and fall on me. And yeah, so many things going on in that song. And every time we ever play that song, I think Rick gets emotional. I do. When we get down to the end of the song, I get it, I feel it, and um, it'll never go away. After Whiteheart, you really began to focus on songwriting and honing your craft even more. What prompted that? Once I left Whiteheart to just focus on songwriting, again, when I went to do that record with Wayne Kirkpatrick, where he produced the first album by Susan Ashton, and we started realizing our things we had in common and we decided to start writing songs together. And I have said this a few times, and I've told Wayne this a few times too. He knows I feel this way. It was at that moment in my life when I started co-writing songs with him that it was literally like somebody reached over and flipped a switch on the wall. And all of a sudden, everything clicked. I was figuring out how to write a good song. And Wayne was very instrumental and critical in that happening with me. And he'll tell you that we both sort of raised the bar for each other. And it's that whole iron sharpens iron thing, you know. Do you prefer to write alone or do you prefer having a co-writer, someone to bounce ideas off and refine them? What's your preference? Well, I prefer to have the the right co-writer. Even with the right co-writer, sometimes nothing can happen, but there's a comfort still that will prevail even if you don't get anything at the moment. Or sometimes it takes a long time to craft a song, even with another writer. And you got to be willing to fail if you're a songwriter with a line that you throw out and even a finished song that you pitch. You got to be willing to have the answer be no or you're in the wrong business, you know, because a successful songwriter will probably get told no nine out of 10 times. How did you become so active as a session player? Because obviously you'd have lots of playing experience and and you talked about how dan huff invited you to play on things and so on but to reach into being with artists like reba or don henley or you know some of these other top-notch artists how did you get into that sphere well my father when he was running mercury records and he ran that label for 21 years i'm in high school and i'm playing electric guitar and that's all I want to do. I'm in a group with Dan Huff and, you know, my father would bring us into the studio and we all recorded a session, our football coaches to present to the school. And they, I remember the whole school gathering in the commons area and playing a vinyl 45 record because the coachman, they called themselves the coachman. They got up and sang on our fifties show, my junior year in high school. 
And everybody freaked out and loved it so much that my dad said, let's bring them into the studio and record those two songs. So we had a record that they could sell at the school for charity or whatever. And But here are me and Dan Huff in the studio. And we're like, yes, this is what we want to do, you know. So my dad is seeing me in the studio environment for the first time, you know, and it's not as nerve wracking for me because it's not, you know, Reba McIntyre, which it would become at some point. Reba McIntyre. I'm a, I'm a student at Belmont. She's recording her first record, you know. He invites me to come down. And I've, at this point, I've played on a Johnny Rodriguez album, but it was an overdub. But, it, you know, at some point, he he brings me down to play with all the my heroes and so that was a little scarier so i was doing this stuff for my dad getting experience and then as you come out of school or you're at belmont you're with all these students who are have the similar ambitions that you do and there's one studio at belmont university back then it was belmont college by the way and everybody in the school of music business who wanted the studio would sign up for it and sometimes you'd wait for two weeks and you sometimes your start time would be 2 a.m you know so we were going into the studio, getting experience there, and all that experience was mattering. Joining the band Whiteheart, you know, we're here, we're going to the studio. So, and then out of that, members of the group would call me and ask me to come play on this artist they're producing, or you know, I was seeing doors opening here and there. And but all the while that I was playing the sessions and doing that world, I was really in, more interested in being in a band and writing songs. And so I was always kind of keeping that parallel to whatever I was doing as a player in the studio. And Let's talk Change the World, because that song probably in some ways changed your life. What a yeah. beautiful, beautiful song. Spent 81 weeks on the Billboard charts. That was a record breaker right there. Obviously sung by, by Eric Clapton. Back in uh, the early 90s, when I, like I said, started writing songs with Wayne, we thought, let's try to get a record deal. And we wrote songs and recorded uh, four songs. We written four songs and spent a bunch of money with a label in New York who wanted to hear us. Well, I take that back. It was a publishing production deal I had here in town or actually signed through MCA Los Angeles. And I had this production budget to go in and cut these four sides with Wayne. And we invited Tommy Sims and Chris McHugh. So it's like, there's the White Heart rhythm section. Yeah, seriously doing these first four songs in the studio and just on some downtime between recording songs, Tommy busts out an acoustic guitar and says, fellas, is this, uh, is this something that this group could do and starts playing the verse riff and change the world, you know? And he had a title at that point too, change the world. So Wayne asks him to put that on a tape. He works on it for a while and then it goes dormant. And then I get it from him and work on it for a while and end up, a year later now, this all has taken a year from the time Tommy played the riff for us in the studio. Wayne gets it, then I get it. And a year later, uh, I go meet Tommy in Columbus, Ohio. I'm anxious to do a demo of this song. Tommy and I cut this track, and I bring the two-inch tape in my trunk home. And so I'm driving home with a cassette in the cassette deck of my car, but I've got a micro cassette deck in my hand, and I'm driving down the road, wind, noise, and everything, singing lines into my micro cassette recorder, trying to see if I can finish lyrics, you know. So I have the lyrics finished when I get back to Nashville, and I go into a studio with an acoustic guitar and record the acoustic guitar and all the vocals on the demo. So that's in 
spring of 1992. My friend Doug Howard, he wants me back over at Polygram because he quote unquote, I like what you do. But he was hearing my songs and he would jump around the room playing air guitar like Chuck Berry duck walk, you know. <laughs> nice. And so I thought, well, he likes my songs. Well, sure enough, a couple of years or whatever go by, February 93 signs me to a deal because he likes what I do. And the first song I turn into him is Change the World, saying, can you think you could get this to Clapton? He had just done Tears in Heaven. And I thought if he's doing acoustic pop kind of stuff like that, Maybe he might like this song. Well, that's not how it happened. But so within some months, they get a hold with Winona Judd, puts it on hold. We're told it's going to be a single. And then we wait two and a half years for the albums to come out. At the end of 95 on into 96, put out one, then two, then three singles off that album, which were not our song. And then we walk away thinking we failed. And that later that summer, Tommy comes in and he's playing bass and I'm playing guitar on a Nicole Smith album. And he just casually says, by the way, GK, we're getting another cut on Change the World. And I said, who? He said, Clapton. I'm told at some point that Kathy Nelson, who is a music supervisor on a lot of films out in Hollywood, and you see her name, a lot of Bruckheimer blockbuster movies, Armageddon, Con Air, those kind of things, and Touchstone Pictures. She's casting music for Phenomenon and Tony Brown, his buddies with her, she visited his office in Nashville. He said, listen to this song I'm going to record on Winona. Plays her the demo of Change the World. She remembers it when she's casting music for Phenomenon, the movie. Gets a hold of the demo, gets it in the hands of Robbie Robertson, who's exec producing the soundtrack album. He gets it in the hands of Clapton and Babyface, and bam, that record happened. What an incredible story, and boy, you had to wait for that one, huh? <laughs> and what was that like when it just became huge. I mean, everybody knows that song. What What is it like to be a piece of writing something like that? I, I think within a week of Tommy telling me that Clapton had recorded the song, I had a, once again, I got a cassette tape, went out in my car, sat down and listened to it by myself, and the intro started playing. And the first thing that went across my mind was, dang, he slowed it down. Oh. You know, and then I listened, and then when the song ended, I couldn't do anything but fall out laughing. I just fell out la laughter. And I, and I hope nobody's watching me. I'm sitting in the car by myself just laughing, you know. And I played it again, same thing, laughing. Third, fourth time, I'm going, wait a minute. This, they have made a great record. So this is the summer of 96. And then we start, and I remember coming home from church every Sunday for weeks. Casey Kasem's Countdown, and it was number one. Number one, and my little kids are dancing in front of the speakers. At you know, wow. That's what, those things like that are far better to me than looking at the charts or whatever. When I called my high school for a reason at some point, and they put me on hold, and they had put that song on the hold button. <laughs> oh, I mean, my. Yeah, that, yeah, you know you've arrived. <laughs> that's when it's like, this is even better than hearing it on the radio. Things like that. Um, you know, just, and the fact that I would meet Clapton at some point, talk to him on the phone six years after that, just wow. little things like that and meet. And when I met Paul McCartney and I'm sticking my hand in his hand to shake hands with Paul McCartney, when somebody asked me, what was that like? I said, it was like meeting music, you know? Yeah. Right. And, 
and but but what happened at that moment when I was meeting him, the person who had told me, come stand over here. He's one of the you're one of the people he wants to meet first when he comes in. And I found out later it's just because he wants to know who the music people in the room are, that kind of thing. And so when I got introduced to Paul McCartney, and I remember wincing when she started saying it, this is Gordon, who I told you was one of the writers on Change the World by Eric. And as she's saying this, my, my, my spirit is going, no, 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 don't tell this guy, you know, what I've done. <laughs> yeah. Don't. But he looks at me after she said, Eric Clapton changed the world. And he said, well, you're big. <laughs> wow. And wow. I just, you know, I'm thinking that one song, just that one song. So you're right. It's a life changing thing. It was a blessing from heaven above and and opened so many doors. That's how I got put with Peter Frampton. I don't think there wow. that he would have probably taken notice of me otherwise. You got a Grammy for the work that you did with Frampton for uh, for fingerprint. Are you so you co-wrote, you play on the album. Did you and Frampton pr- co-produce. co-produce that together? Yeah, that's how why I ended up like I said the, the producers now get actual gramophone uh, Grammys. So yeah, that's something. That's an album that I was able to co-produce with him out of his generosity you know i mean just you know somebody put us together to write songs and then that was 22 years ago and and for some reason or another and i believe it's just a brother you know brotherly love kind of relationship we became fast friends and i became a go-to guy for him when it came time to write songs when it came time to just needing one musician to go play this TV thing or one musician to go do five legs of these acoustic raw tours we did where it was just two and a half hours of two acoustic guitars and singing and all the hits and the stories, which was phenomenal. That's truly incredible. Now you have, speaking of something that is a recent uh, piece that you've written with dogs of peace, this was a band I've loved for a long time. And you talked about, even in the midst of all the session playing and the writing, you always, you know, desired to be in a band. I'd imagine Dogs of Peace became that for you. You guys mm-hmm. put out your first album in '96, right. and then took a uh, took a little bit of time to uh, to put out Heal in 2016, <laughs> which yeah. is so good. Yeah, we so got good. Right on <laughs> we got right on that sequel. Um, but no, that you know that was another accidental thing I backed into. I, I laughed. And just kind of remain in awe that I've never auditioned for anything. And so I I had been in Whiteheart and five years after that, I had enjoyed working at the, during that window of time, I enjoyed working on some PFR records as a writer, player, singer. And I love those guys, still love those guys. And Jimmy Lee Sloss was producing them. Well, at some point, they threw in the towel as a band, called it quits, and Sparrow, the label they were on, asked Jimmy Lee, hey, would you, why don't you and Gordon find us a band like that to fill that void on the, on the label, find somebody to produce? And so we thought about it for a while, and Jimmy kept his eyes open and ears open. And then at some point, Jimmy called me and said, hey, um, Peter York is, at Sparrow is wanting to know, hey, if we would just do an album for him, don't have to tour, all that get on the bus and just do an album. So that's how Dogs of Peace came about. And what began as just sort of answering the bell and filling the void or whatever on Sparrow's record label became something I got passionate about. 
the writing of the songs and we were sort of met with, you know, like CCM magazine uh, reviewed that album speak it's called as being too much like the Beatles, too much like the Eagles and Pink Floyd and James gang. And they even made the comment that one song on there called dogs of peace sounds like it could have been on a white heart album. And I'm like raising my hand going, hello. Yeah. I, I was in that group um, that would be a clue as to why the similarities. And you know what's wild, Brian, is that about the time I'm digesting the fact that Winona is not singling our song, Change the World, and Dogs of Peace is not going to be anything that's going to you know light up the world or whatever, we get the Clapton News nominated for the Grammys, and we go to the Grammys. The first Grammy they gave that night was Pop male vocal performance, Eric Clapton changed the world. I remember breathing a sigh of relief, thinking, well, at least he will think kindly of us or whatever. And then 45 minutes later, they give Song of the Year, and it's us. And so we go up on stage, and there's the three of us, and Gloria Estefan hands me the stunt Grammy, and Wayne sticks his elbow in my ribs and says, are you going to talk? <laughs> like, you go, you, you go first. So I walk up to the mic with nothing prepared, but the first thing that came out of my mouth was this. I said, my, first of all, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he is strong, weak in no way. And then mm. I made thank yous. So... The brand new single you guys have out, and that just came out just a few weeks ago. It is a truly, truly brilliant song. It's called 2020 Vision. Let's take a listen to it. So people who have never heard Dogs of Peace, I encourage you guys, go look these guys up. Check out this song right now, and then Gordon and I will talk about it on the backside.
this is a great song. I I don't know how I missed it, but it, when I listened, to, I listened to it like five times in a row last night. Like this is so good. This You're the first absolutely. person, Brian, to give me any thoughts after hearing that song because I don't know. I really, honestly, don't know what anybody who has, if anybody's heard it, and then what they thought about it after they heard it. You're the first person to tell me that. Really, I, and I'm not just saying this because you're you're on, because if I didn't like it, we wouldn't be talking about it. I, that's how I would avoid that. But it is truly a beautifully written song. The First of all, the vocalist, what a voice. The song is beautiful. The production is top-notch. And the song really, it's got such a great feel to it. What can you tell us about the writing and, and recording about that? I think when I thought of 2020 vision, it was because we were right in the middle of the, the pandemic. We mm -hmm. had canceled all the concerts. The lyric for 2020 vision came from the year 2020, obviously. But as is the case with almost all Dogs of Peace songs that come to my mind right now over the course of these two albums we've done prior, mm -hmm. there's always this constant conversation going on between whoever's singing the song and then the response it comes back from God. The chorus comes along and it's exactly what we know to be true uh, as followers of Jesus, you know. He says to us, come to me. Let's talk Garth. Because yeah. you've written 15 songs that he's done, including You Move Me, which hit number two on the charts. How did your friendship with Garth get started? Because you guys have been friends for quite a while. I met Garth and became a friend with him because of my brother, Brian. And Brian was actually hiring Garth to sing demos when Garth first came to Nashville. So Garth is that guy who takes loyalty to a whole different level than most people are familiar with. He loves my brother, Brian, and has given him a career as a writer. Brian's written more hit, hits for Garth, yeah. Uh, what song did he write for Garth that was huge? Well, the Beaches of Cheyenne is one. Uh, American Honky Tonk Bar Association. That's what one. I was thinking of, yeah. Brian introduced Garth to the music I was doing. Remember that project I mentioned that I was doing with Wayne Kirkpatrick? Yeah. Where we were trying to get a record deal. Brian gave him a tape of our stuff. And I remember being in the being somewhere with Wayne one day, and my brother Brian called and said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, Garth told me to tell you he got a speeding ticket in Arkansas listening to White Flag off of your you guys' tape. And I said, well, I'll put that on my resume. You know, Garth got a speech. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But these were songs <clears throat> that he would record on the Chris Gaines album eight years later. And in 2007, I get a call from him out of the blue. and He's quote unquote retired at the moment. Mm -hmm. Would you come and play my country stuff with me um, for, and it ended up being nine shows at the Sprint Center in Kansas City. And then I, you know, would go and do the Tonight Show, Jay Leno, Ellen DeGeneres, doing the country thing, just when he would put out a new song or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then in 2018, I get a call from him saying, you want to do three years of stadiums with me? And I'm like, let me think about it. Yep. You know? <laughs> and so that's what, that's what I've been doing since 2019 when they let us. What is it like for you to walk out there with, you know, 80, 90,000 people out there? Because yeah. you're not a wallflower on stage. Garth has you come up with him quite a bit. What is that like for you to play on that yeah. huge stage in front of that massive group of people? And I, listen, I'm looking forward to the Baton Rouge show because it's 102,000 coming to that one. 102, and wow. 
I was born in Louisiana, so in some respects, that'll be like my homecoming thing, or because I've never really played a big show in the state of Louisiana. But no, I tell you what, it's like it's different than playing a wedding or the Bluebird Cafe, you know, where people are sitting like they can reach out and hit me on the shoulder, you know. Sometimes that can be a little more nerve wracking when it's a smaller, intimate thing. But when it's ninety thousand people with Garth, in some ways, I feel more insulated or you know, he wants us to go to the front of the stage and, and get have these moments with the, the audience. And so far, all the moments I feel like I've had with the audience, if I get up close on the edge of the stage, is them trying to look around me to find where he is. <laughs> so so I, can, I, I jokingly say, man, I could be up there with, I could be on fire, you know, like Gene Simmons. <laughs> and they would be looking around me trying to get past me. So, but it is, it's amazing. What a feeling and that crowd. And then when we play the river, everybody in the stadium turns on their phone light and every other light goes off and it looks like you're in outer space. Do you get a little nervous? You're looking out from the wings. You get feel anything in butterflies or anything? I feel the right amount of nervous versus energy and, and adrenaline. And when you walk out in front of that crowd, if you don't believe at that point that you're where you're supposed to be, I I just say, I don't know. There would have to be something wrong with the fella to go up there and, and, and to shy away from that or to not feel, I, I don't know if, the, if confidence is the right word or emboldened or whatever, but you just get swept in, up into the energy that is this place. And you just kind of feel like, okay, this is what we're going to do for 90 minutes. Hang on, and I'm hanging on, and I'm loving every second of it. How fun. Well, as we near our, the end of our time together, what's coming up for you? I know you're getting ready to jump back out on the road with Garth, and then after yeah. that, what do you have lined up? After we go play the Orlando show a week from this next Saturday, I'll come home, and Chris Lusinger, the other guitar player in, in the live band for the Garth shows, who's played on all of Garth's records. He's put together a house band and I'm, me and him will be playing electric guitars to go to the Musicians Hall of Fame and celebrate at a party in honor of Steve Cropper being nominated for a Grammy for a blues album of the year. So we'll go play Dog of the Bay with wow. Steve Cropper in the room who played nice. on that record and so many other. So this is our last question. I, I know you love the Beatles and what an <laughs> incredible opportunity you had to meet Paul McCartney. So let's just say hypothetically, you get a knock at your door. It's Paul McCartney. And he said the two of you could either write a song together or perform a song of your choice together. Which would you <laughs> choose? Which would you choose? Write together or perform your favorite Beatles song with Paul? I would think I would want to write together with him because that moment of performing would be an awesome memory and a fleeting thing. But if we wrote something together, that will outlive both of us. And so, plus I would want, that's the thing I would want to know. I've seen him perform, but I would want to write with him to see that and experience that process. What's it like? What, how does he do what he does? You know? So yeah. I, I think I would gravitate towards that. I kind of figured that would be your choice. So that's, that's a great answer. Well, Gordon, I cannot thank you enough for joining me. My appreciation for you and the music you've made over the years means a lot to me and to many, many others. And Thank you so much for the kind words, and it's been a pleasure spending time with you and chatting. Well, thank you so much. And for everybody listening, thank you. 
please follow or subscribe. It's, it's a huge help to a podcaster like me. And special thanks to my friend Chris Taylor for the use of Arise and Shine from his great album Never Ending Now as our theme song. I hope you've all enjoyed my chat with Gordon Kennedy. And please join me on our next journey to the stage. That's a wrap. All right. <laughs>